0: This is Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Steve Kim. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Welcome back, listeners, for another week of Us Three Again,
1: two in a row. You know what? It's good to be back with the team. Pretty cool. I enjoy doing interviews, Terry, but uh, but it's good to be with you guys. Mm-hmm. Yes, it
0: is. And one thing I haven't done for a while is bring a, a very interesting story to the podcast.
1: You uh, weird, digging around crazy. on the web? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> what, what have you dug so, up today?
0: Have you ever felt that you're going to grab something, as in something that you really, really want, but then it just gets taken away from you? Do you see my arm movement?
1: I did see that. I don't think anyone else did. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest with you, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, okay. Well, let's uh, look at the story.
0: Banksy painting self-destructs immediately after being sold.
1: Can we just take a moment to reflect on that title? Banksy? (laughs) That's the name of the artist. Banksy.
0: Banksy. All right. He was in Sotheby's. He's a legit name, a okay. legit painter. And his Girl with a Balloon sold for $1.4 million. Wow. Oh, you
1: know, I think I heard about this. After
0: the exchange and, you know, everything was exchanged, money and the owner got the painting, <laughs> the painting self-destructed. The painting self-destructed. At the bottom of the painting, he had a shredder put behind the frame. So in the picture, half half of the painting is being shredded.
1: (laughs) Was it the real painting? Yes. And this guy really did this? Yeah. Do we know why? No. Okay, so here, listen, this is the moral of the story right here. (laughs) First of all, you know you have too much money when you can pay $100 million for a painting. Moral two? 1.4 million. million. 1.4. Moral two is you know that you have too much money when you're willing to shred your (laughs) painting that's sold for $1.4 million. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Is that art? Tell me, is that art? Is that? So it shredded it halfway. Did this guy know that it was going to shred it halfway? Well, the
0: artist did. Yeah, but not no. the person that bought it. <laughs> you should see the face of the people on this picture looking at while it's shredded. I'd like to. Why don't you flip, flip that around here? Look at this guy on the phone. <laughs> They're all just like, what is just happening?
1: <laughs> that is bizarre. Anyway. That's art, I guess. Now it's worth even more money. Yeah,
0: probably. All right, let's get into the subject today. We have a post that we're going to interact with that was posted on Humans of New York.
1: Yeah, so th- you know this is artistic in of itself. The writing on that Facebook page is quite good. I hear that they actually put together a book some time ago uh, okay. that did quite well. I am totally ignorant of all of that. All I know it has been going on for a while since yeah. 2010. That's so what they've re- been
0: gathering pictures and stories of people throughout New York. Yeah, really interesting.
1: And it was new to me. I, I really didn't know about this until a friend of mine sent me an article and just said, hey, Andy, I think you'd find this interesting. Yeah. And I did. I found it very interesting. Yeah. So interesting, in fact.
0: So interesting. We're going to bring one of the posts uh, into discussion today. There's a picture of a, a young man a sitting down and looking straight into the camera. So we'll post this picture. This is what he
1: has to say. Here, let me read it for you. This was what was sent to me. It's a question of point of view. How can consciousness exist in a material world? Perhaps consciousness is an illusion, but if I perceive consciousness to be an illusion, then surely I must exist. These questions give me so much anxiety. I can't stop thinking about them. I'm not attentive when other people speak to me. I forget to clean my room. I don't do my homework. I can't learn my lines in drama class. It creates so many problems in my life. My parents tell me, you could win this award or you could meet these grades, but you don't care enough. They've taken me to 10 psychologists, never a diagnosis. They just say that I'm a dreamer. And in this world, dreamer is not good. Dreamer means child. I need to become an adult and do material things so that I'm stable, so that I can buy a house one day, so that I'm not living beneath a bridge thinking these thoughts. But it's so hard to find the energy. Before I begin, I must know if life is absurd. I can't live in an illusion. I want to be lucid. I need to know that I'm doing things for a reason, that I'm expending energy for a reason. If death is the end of all this and nothing but emptiness after that, then it's a terrible problem. It would be better not to exist than to exist in a world without meaning. Yowza.
0: So we have a lot going on in there. I mean, looking through the post itself, there's 11,000 responses to this post alone.
2: And Humans of New York actually made the first comment saying, he was a very open and friendly guy. He'll figure it out. Also, also, this should be read in a French accent to get the full experience. <laughs> I, you know what? We should have read it in a French accent just to. No, <laughs> but you, you realize from
0: all those kind of comments directed at him, there is a lot of people looking and asking the same questions, right? Throughout all of this.
1: Oh, absolutely. Including myself. Yeah. I think that's probably why I was so drawn to this. As you guys know from my own story, uh, and I'm curious if you guys have had anything similar. But I was 12 years old when I first started having these sorts of thoughts. Uh, I remember lying awake in bed at night, looking up at the ceiling and and in the darkness, you know, before you go to sleep, thinking about the fact that one day I was going to die. And then I began to think about what death would be and that one day I would be dead for eternity. And just this overwhelming sense of meaninglessness and Dread just kind of swept over me like a wave. And it was so overwhelming that I became nauseous. Uh, my palms were sweaty. I sat up in bed and I just kind of did everything I could to get these terrible thoughts out of my mind. And for a long time, I thought I was alone in this. I thought if somehow I've tapped into this knowledge that no one else has tapped into, right? That everything is meaningless. And and for a long time in my life, I tried, you know, as a kid, I was just kind of working through that. And in many ways, I was afraid at night to go to bed because I was just just terrified that these thoughts would come back and haunt
2: me. I I don't know. What about you guys? Have you guys ever had an experience like that? Not quite to that extent, but it is a question that definitely came up for me as well when I was younger. Um, My reaction has always been, well, I believe that God exists. And and so I I grew up in a Christian home and that has always been my answer. So I don't think I experienced the same kind of dread. But it was curious, um, even with the idea of, okay, you know, I'll be in heaven with God, so on and so forth. Sometimes the question would still pop into my head, like, what's the point of all that, though? Because I had a deficient concept of what heaven would be like. And so, of course, I'm thinking in terms of some kind of a finite good that I'm enjoying, whatever it might be, whether it's hiking endlessly or playing video games endlessly, whatever. At the end of the day, I'm like, wow, like I get so bored, you know. And then there was that kind of dread coming over me a little bit, maybe not to the extent that you experienced it, but yeah.
0: I mean, at a young age for myself, I mean, I grew up in a Christian home as well. And, uh, you know, the teaching that I got from my parents at that particular time, really when I looked up into the sky, and I remember laying on the grass at times in northern Saskatchewan where you can actually see the northern lights and stuff like that. And you look up and it's just like, awe. that's what came to me at a young age. It wasn't until, you know, later that you have some questions and some doubts about you know as you get older
1: did, did you ever did you ever find terry did you ever find yourself in an existential crisis like this like this no, young i don't
0: think i have not like this to this degree but you do i mean i think as a human you question and you doubt at times maybe many times Mm -hmm. whether God is real and it happens more so when we get older
1: (laughs) it was interesting for me that it was the first question was wasn't whether or not God was real Uh, I actually always have believed in God Uh, that was never a question for me it was whether or not my life had any meaning I I saw those as two separate questions and now it's interesting to me because I I didn't know where to go with those sorts of questions so you know where I, I took them was to my weightlifting coach. I remember in high school. He was the first person that I ever really opened up to and confided and just, you know and I think the reason that I did is my weightlifting coach in some ways reminded me of the myth of Sisyphus, right? This Greek myth of, you know, this guy who's punished by having to roll this giant rock up this hill for it to continually be rolled down and he's got to do this repetitive action over and over again. In the midst of just this repetitive action, there there's this Idea that's being communicated that it's, it's just meaningless, and that this ultimately is what our lives is is just this repetitive action that in the end is just meaningless. And and my weightlifting coach though was just an interesting example of this to me in that you know he's constantly lifting weight up and down. You know if it's the bench press, you know you know you're pushing weight, and yet in the midst of that, I thought, man, this is so meaningless, it's so pointless. But yet this guy does it, and he's just a bear of a human being. Uh, the guy could bench press like 400 pounds. And so I remember thinking he's got to have this thing figured out. Clearly there's, there's some meaning in, in all of this repetitive nonsense. And, and I remember when I asked him, you know, deep philosophical question about life's meaning, uh, his response to me was, uh, was Steiger go put some more weight on that,
2: you know, bar and go, go hit the squat rack or whatever. It wasn't much help. It was wasn't, wasn't <laughs> much help. That kind of reminds me of that movie that we watched for Filament Theology one time, right? Uh, What's it called? Looking for a Friend for the End of the World? Yeah, with Steve Carell. Yeah, with Steve Carell. If you're not familiar with the movie, basically the premise of it is humanity just failed their last attempt to stop this incoming asteroid that's going to destroy the whole earth basically and so then you know there's still several weeks of time left before the impact actually occurs and so you can see how people react to all of that in the face of this impending doom and the main character Steve Carell goes to the gym he's on the treadmill, but he realizes this is stupid. This is absurd. Like I'm going to die in a few weeks. What does this matter? And then there's this guy in the background. The guy's just like really ripped. Like he has just given her, right? He's pumping iron. He just doesn't care. You know, that's what it kind of reminds me of. Oh yeah. That movie does such an amazing
1: job at bringing the irony of our daily lives into focus in juxtaposition to our death. And really raises in a vivid way, you know, what, what is the meaning to all this? Where at first Steve Carell goes to work. You know, after learning that, you know, in a few days, the world's going to end. And yet he finds himself at work. And then irony of all ironies is he's selling insurance policies and people <laughs> are phoning and wanting to find out whether or not their insurance policy covers an asteroid hitting the earth, you know, and it just doesn't get any more ridiculous.
2: Yeah. Um, just last night, I was telling the story of William Van Poyck. You know, the the guy who wrote or who wrote the letters that later became the Death Row Diaries and like about a month before his execution and his writing about just that utter meaninglessness that he's experiencing. Right. Let me just read a quick excerpt. If you've read Andy's book on this, uh, Andy's book, Thinking, you heard this quote, but it just it again, it puts it so vividly. So, again, this guy. He's just a month away from being executed. And he goes, When your warrant gets signed, so many things suddenly become trivial. I've already thrown or given away 95% of my personal property, the stuff that for years seemed so important. All those great books I'll never get to read. Reams and reams of legal work I've been dragging around and studying for two decades and which has suddenly lost its relevance. My magazines and newspapers stack up unread. I have little appetite to waste valuable, irreplaceable hours reading up on current events. Does it really matter to me now what's happening in the Middle East or on Wall Street or how my Miami Dolphins are looking for the upcoming new season? What's the point? Ditto the TV. I'm uninterested in wasting time watching programs that now mean nothing in the grand scheme of things. The other day, I caught myself reaching for my daily vitamin. Really? I wondered as the absurdity hit me. Likewise, after 40 years of working out religiously, that's out the window now. Again, what's the point? And, and what I pointed out to people last night as I was doing my first session of the Thinking Series at this coffee shop was the real difference between William Van Poyck and us is that we just really have a little bit more time, maybe not even, right? But in the end, we're all going to die. I I think that's right. I think that frames the question nicely, and I think it
1: helps us to appreciate what this young man is bringing up. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's there's more depth to what he's bringing up, though that I that I want to delve into. Uh, You're going to say something,
0: Terry? Well, I was just reading the comments again. Uh, when we, when people were talking about meaning, what came up, you know, a lot of people feeling that emptiness, there was a lot of people that said,
1: just create your own meaning in the comments, in the comments. And, and for and a that lot brings of people, up questions as well, right? Oh yeah. I mean, for, for a lot of people, that's the answer. That's the answer these days for yeah. sure. I mean, and if you've ever read people like Jean-Paul Sartre, who very much dealt with this dread of meaninglessness. And, and in many ways, he talks about this wave of nausea that would come over him. Yet you've got these other figures like Albert Camus and others who, who really in this existential crisis are trying their best to create meaning. Um, and, and in many sense, what you get is this idea of pulling yourself up by, you know, your bootstrap, right? It's this existentialism where, where you are going to find the meaning in your life by living in the midst of the meaninglessness. You're, you're going to embrace that absurd reality and, but you're going to push forward and you're going to create meaning in the midst of it. And in that way, they would see that life then does have some sort of meaning.
0: Do you not think that it all starts with his first question there? How can consciousness exist in a material world? And then he goes on to say, but if I perceive consciousness to be an illusion, then surely I must exist. There's a little bit of Descartes going on there, right? Yep. Right. Like we have to address a question of what is in our society today and what is the worldview, which is materialism. How can we think and how can we have mental thoughts in this materialistic world? Framework.
1: That's where we need to start this conversation. This is not a new conversation. This is an old conversation, even older than Descartes. And this is yeah. something that surprised me with Descartes. You know, with Descartes, you get this dichotomy between Descartes and Hobbes, uh, Thomas Hobbes, where Descartes will. He'll argue for a soul, but he wants to just he wants to create a division, a mind body division mm-hmm. whereas you've got others like Hobbes that would say no Descartes there's no mind body division there's just body." And mind is just material. So it's just this, what some would later refer to as an emergent property. But that doesn't even go far enough back. You got to go all the way back to the Greeks. I'm talking before Aristotle, before Plato. You get into Greek thinkers such as Lucipius and Democritus. Mm-hmm. And these thinkers were atomists. The word atom, the etymology of that is just the idea of if you cut something in half and then you take that half and you cut that in half and then you take that half and you cut that in half, you will reach a point that is an uncuttable atom moment. And, and that's what atom means. It means uncuttable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and so then that becomes the fundamental property of reality. What they would say, uh, Democritus would say, is the atoms, the parts, and the void. That's all that actually Exists. They're the original materialists or physicalists. That's right. And this is just an idea that in history has gone away and then makes a comeback and goes away and makes a comeback. And we are now living in the post-Enlightenment era in which materialism of this sort has made a comeback. Mm -hmm. But it has problems, significant problems that I think is worth us talking about here because – you know, as this young man's raising this question, I first actually just want to say, I think this is interesting. When people raise questions like this guy is raising, I honestly believe that this is a moment in which I think that they're interacting with God. I really do. Uh, I think this is a moment in which the Holy Spirit speaks to our conscience, where we realize that there's some irony going on here and that I clearly didn't create the universe. I clearly didn't create myself. Yet here I exist in a world and I have a decision in the midst of this. I can either view this whole universe thing from a purely materialistic view, which he's talking about here, but he says, but it leads to absurdities. And so then, and and it leads to the absurdity that I don't even exist, which I want to get into in a moment here. But yet if I go the other route and embrace that I do exist and that consciousness is real, it starts to take me down this path that ultimately leads me to God. And in that, I have to make the decision. Am I going to take a path that could lead me to God? Or am I going to take a path that leads me to absurdities? And at the end of the day, I would actually argue, it's really just going to come down to worship. What is it that you worship? What are you willing to worship? And for many people, what they want to worship at the end of the day is themselves. And if you draw a conclusion that all that exists is the material world, and there's no right or wrong, and then you can just do whatever you want. But if you go down the other path in which God exists, then there's problems of morality and all these other sorts of things. And it's not as easy to worship yourself in those so that's one thought that I think is important just to think about before we get too deep into this. What do you think, Stephen? Terry, you disagree with me on that? What are your thoughts on that? Just
2: on a minor point, yes, from a Christian worldview, we would say that at the end of the day, you know, we have this bent in our hearts, right? We want to worship ourselves or anything other than God, really, uh, worshiping the created thing rather than the creator. But I just wonder what it might sound like to... Those outside the church, so to speak, whether it's an atheist friend or whatever, when they hear that, they might think, well, that's bizarre. I don't worship myself. But what I think might make more sense is, well, what do you think is the ultimate thing at the end of the day? Is the ultimate reality of this universe personal or is it impersonal? Is it, is it something very much like God or is it more like a law like you see in Buddhism, for example, or some kind of a force like Brahman in Hinduism or something like that? Or is it something impersonal like matter and energy? So at the end of the day, it comes down to, okay, what's what's the ultimate reality? Is it personal or impersonal? It, it reminds me
1: of the conversation I had at the World Congress this year in Switzerland where I'm talking to this law professor from Brazil and we're talking about the gospel. You know, he just heard my presentation, knew I was a Christian I, that I was willing to argue for God. And so he, he wanted to talk with me. So we have lunch together, we're talking. And he comes to this place as an atheist where he's like, you know what, Andy? He goes, I agree with you that yes, there must be something more to all of this universe than just the physical. And yes, I think you're right that that thing that is more must be personal in nature, mm-hmm. but it can't be God. And I guess that's what I'm driving at is that mm. that ridiculousness where, you know, Anything other than God Because once you start to posit God
2: Then you are dealing with somebody Who has a say over your life Yeah, it comes with certain consequences I've always found it interesting That Richard Dawkins, as vociferous And atheist as he is As vocal and outspoken as he is He has no problem with deism He actually actually has, when, when I've heard him describe deism in his debate with John Lennox, and he he has some really high things to say about this kind of God who is so grand and so unfettered by the, the affairs of this world kind of thing. And I was sitting there. All I can hear him say is, I'm fine with God as long as he doesn't have a claim on my life. Yeah, as long as he
1: doesn't tell me what to do. Mm. Now, this is interesting because I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, Dawkins and others, you you know, those are the new atheists. They're not the new atheists. They're just atheists. I mean, atheism and the hostility towards God goes back a long ways. I'll go back just a few years even before the new atheists back in the 40s. This actually, what I'll read from is, was first published in 1925. So this is Bertrand Russell here. Bertrand Russell wrote this uh, article or book called Why I'm Not a Christian, and it was put together with a bunch of other essays. One of those other essays called What I Believe, he writes this. He says, Man is a part of nature, not something contrasted with nature. His thoughts and his bodily movements follow the same laws that describe the motions of the stars and atoms. This is really what this young man, the humans of New York, right? This this is what he's wrestling with, is if that's the case, then that comes with consequences. Now, Bertrand Russell teases these consequences out a little bit farther in. And he says, physical science is thus approaching the stage when it will be complete. And therefore, uninteresting. Given the laws governing the motions of electrons and protons, the rest is merely geography, a collection of particular facts telling their distribution throughout some portion of the world's history. The total number of facts of geography required to determine the world's history is probably finite. Theoretically, they could all be written down on a big book and be kept at Somerset House with a calculating machine attached, with which by turning a handle would enable the inquirer to find out the facts at other times than those recorded. It is difficult to imagine anything less interesting or more difficult from the passionate delights of incomplete discovery. It is like climbing a high mountain and finding nothing at the top except a restaurant where they sell ginger beer, surrounded by fog but equipped With wireless. I'm thinking when he says wireless, he must be talking about telegraph or something. (laughs) right. Pretty sure he has a different idea of wireless than we do. Uh, But the the concept there is a simple but profound one that that has been with us since the time of Adamism, and that is that all that exists is just the material world.
2: Yeah, straight up physicalism.
1: Right. And so you and I just dance to our DNA, as Dawkins would say.
2: C.S. Lewis
0: said the cardinal difficulty was basically just blind chance. Right,
1: right. You have, so well, you have two options. Either you've got chance or determinism. Right. And really, though, those are your two options. Although, as I've said before, those are just two sides of the same coin. Right. Both have the same implication. And that would be what this young man's getting at is that on that consciousness must be an illusion. Now, there's another atheist that I've always appreciated just for his blunt honesty, and that's Alex Rosenberg. In his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, he writes this. The discoveries reported in this chapter, and this is the end of chapter seven. The discoveries reported in this chapter can't fully prepare you for how wrong introspection is nothing really can. Ultimately, science and scientism are going to make us give up as illusory the very thing conscious experience screams out at us loudest and longest. The notion that when we think our thoughts are about anything at all, inside or outside of our minds. I know this sounds absurd, but we'll see that this must be so in the next chapter. Now, then he, he, you know, he's just teasing out physicalism uh, as he goes. What's interesting about that though, and this is the irony that I think is so problematic. And you can, again, get a sense that this kid's wrestling with this. is just how dumb that can be on this. The idea that he's saying, you can't trust your consciousness, but you can trust my book, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you know, you can't trust your thoughts, but you can trust my thoughts, right? And it's one of those things that should keep you up at night. I mean, that's ridiculous. And I think, it really resonates with me when Thomas Nagel wrote his book, uh, Mind and Cosmos, and he really just calls all this garbage out in that book in which he says, listen, and this guy's not not a Christian. He's, he's not a theist. In fact, he even says in a different book, I'd rather that God not exist, right? But he says, I got to be honest with what's being sold to students these days, that this is absolute rubbish to be telling people that consciousness is an illusion but yet you're aware of the illusion and that you should be even listening to what any of these professors have to say.
0: When we talk about, if, even just in reading the post and all the questions that he has, how does natu- these physical states that we have in mat- naturalism bring about mental states? There was a guy I was reading a few years ago, and he basically said a couple problems. He says, why, after appearing in the evolutionary chain, did conscious animals survive? Secondly, he says, these uh, neurological levels produced in a mental life, uh, why are those organisms being favored in the struggle for survival? So there's this, there's this value that we know as having a mental life that comes from God. Why is there any value placed on this idea and this notion of naturalism and, or evolution that we have in our society right now? Why should we put any value on our mental life?
1: Uh, well, I think that that's a really good question. Plantinga, in his book, uh, Where the Problem Really Lies, raises a very similar question. And that is, you know, given naturalism, do I have any good reason to believe that evolution worked in such a way that my consciousness is perceiving the world correctly? Uh, I think that's a valid question. Truth goes straight out the window on naturalism. There is no such thing as truth. Truth is just the state of the way things are. But you have to think about that for a moment, right? Because on physicalism, you've only got two options for the way things are, right? And that is you have chance or determinism. Those are the forces at play. you know. Whereas on a theistic worldview, we believe that there's another force at play, a force that we're quite familiar with, personhood. That persons are able to act on the world as as primary movers so there's conscious states yeah there would each uh, each of us like intentionality or inference right that's exactly right now on materialism though you have to ask well what do you have then on materialism and so what what would even consciousness be on materialism and ultimately what's argued is that consciousness is is an emergent property The problem is, though, on that is it becomes very fuzzy what people mean by an emergent property. And when you push them on that subject, they will argue that although you can have something that emerges from the brain that they would call mind, that at the end of the day, it's still reducible to the brain. The the mind is the brain. And thus, it's still accountable to those same physical forces. They have not escaped the mind Hasn't escaped the same forces that the brain is being controlled by, determinism or randomness. Now, on that, that's why, by the way, in the university right now, determinism is taught so frequently. And it has major, major problems. And just think about one of these. And this is what Bertrand Russell was, by the way, was getting at and what I read. He's just saying that if everything's physical like this, then you could actually just wind things forward or backward. You could know everything that there is to know about the universe. You could just know everything, right? Because everything's already been determined. You know, from the very beginning, when the universe exploded into existence, you know, it's like a bunch of dominoes. They all got knocked over and they're all falling in a very particular pattern. And and if you just had the right information, you could figure all that out. Now think about that for a moment. You got people like Sam Harris, who writes a book called Free Will, which is, by the way, one of the most ridiculous books I've ever read in my life. Again, it's one of those ironies where he's telling you to read his book about the way reality is. And the point being, you can't know the way reality is because it's just all determined. Another irony, by the way, that I just have to point out is that before that book, he wrote a book called Letters to a Christian Nation in which he was furious that there could be a God that would allow young children to be abducted, you know, raped and murdered. But then in his follow-up book, there's the problem with secularism. The follow-up book, Free Will, he goes on to argue that criminals who do those sorts of behavior have done neither bad nor, you know,
2: nor good. It's just, it's just indifferent. It's just, that's what they were determined to do. In fact, that's why he would say that, you know, incarceration is more about quarantine than actually punishing the evil that has been done because he doesn't believe in evil. That's right. It's just a human zoo. You keep dangerous people at bay because you you're just you not
1: sure if they're going to kill you or not, but not because they've done anything wrong. Now, think about this for a moment, right? Because if everything is determined, then it means that Sam Harris was determined to believe that determinism is true. But he can't know that determinism is true. All that, all that he can know is that he was determined to believe that it was true. In a similar way, then, I was determined to believe that that determinism is false. So I find it very ironic, though, that he would go to all the efforts of writing a book to tell me that my determinism is less true than his determinism and how on earth he could somehow, and this is the main point, how on earth he could escape determinism to be able to get that God's eye view to be able to see the way that the world really is. Again, it gets back to this irony. And this is why when I read things like this humans of New York, that my heart just breaks for this individual because I can see that this guy needs Jesus desperately. Mm -hmm. So what
0: are those things that would ground the Christian worldview to be a
1: better option? Well, I think right off the get go, it's obvious to us and must be obvious without leading into absurdities. The world is not and cannot be purely physical. That there's clearly something more. And so I think that's the first step to freeing yourself from the absurdities of physicalism from a secular worldview. The second step then would be to allow that to guide you. Okay, if I'm going to open myself up to the, the, the idea that consciousness isn't just reducible to the physical and that there must be more to this universe than just the material, that's going to lead you on a journey. And, and ultimately, it's, it's going to lead you to God. It's going to lead you to Jesus. And it does so in a very simple way. And that is when, when we take that logical step, even in ourselves, notice what it's doing with this young man. It's leading him to the, the belief that he exists, that there is such a thing as personhood. And when you accept that there is such a thing as personhood, you begin to realize that we didn't bring ourselves into existence, that we were brought into existence. And ultimately, it's going to lead you to an idea that there is a person that exists that is greater than you and in whom you owe your being. And ultimately, this is God. For me, this is one of the reasons Why I love being a Christian This is why my faith is so rich to me And this is why I love verses Like Paul says in Colossians that, that in Jesus Is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge I believe that Because I can't make sense of reality Outside of God And in particular outside of Jesus Christ It just turns into nonsense It turns into absurdities And so again, my heart breaks For individuals like this Because I know what it felt like to be like that and to have those sorts of thoughts that are all consuming until I met Jesus.
0: There's a lot to discuss here, and we've uh, mentioned a number of things. I think people just need to kind of sit around together, (laughs) have some discussions about this, because there is a lot to talk about.
1: And on that note, maybe with your kids. Yeah. You know, your kid may be a 12-year-old like I was that's wrestling through some deep, scary thoughts, and they need somebody to walk with them through that. They need to know that they're not alone, and they need to know there's answers.
0: On that note, I want to remind people that we have uh, the Human Project Kids podcast, that they can go to and listen to with their kids. We have one book out already and another one coming out.
1: Yeah, we have another kid's book that's coming out. I'm very excited about it. It's a book that's on what it means to have value as a human being, what it means to be made in the image of God. And so if if you've ever wondered, how do how do I explain what it means to be made in the image of God to a child. How do I explain what it means to have equal value or to have value to a child? This children's book is my attempt at doing that, And this book was done in honor of my niece, Matlin, who has cerebral palsy and was adopted from Calcutta, India. Uh, She is a lovely human being uh, who has incredible value in Jesus and being made in the image of God. Here's an individual that goes through a lot of challenges, but she gets back up day after day uh, knowing that she's created by God and deeply loved. So yeah, check out that book. Check out that book. It's coming out in the next... (laughs) I think, what, half a year? No, 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 it'll be out in the next month.
0: Next month. Oh, okay. Excellent. There's some resources there for you parents uh, to discuss these questions with your kids. Well, thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is the Ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about.